Would you please bow your heads in prayer with me? Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus is a good storyteller. There's an enemy at hand. A crafty, subtle, smart enemy. The enemy doesn't come in and plow down all this wonderful wheat that's supposed to provide for the family. No, the enemy is more cunning than that. The enemy sneaks over at night, at night and plants a mimic weed. Some of your translations may say tares. And what that is, is a crop that's dangerously similar, just like Lucas was talking about with these leaves. It's dangerously similar to the wheat. In fact, you can't tell the difference between the two. It's called darnel. It's this poisonous, um, poisonous fruit that comes up, and you can't tell the difference between the two until when it does bear fruit. And when it bears it, it can be poisonous, so you want to get that right. That's the thing about sin and evil in this world. It might seem like sin is pretty obvious. Murder, theft, things like that jump out of, at us. We can easily identify those as a sin, but often it is not. Often sin looks a lot like what is good. For example, food is good, am I right? The choir, can you give me an amen? Yeah, all right, all right. Fried okra, that's my favorite food. EL fudge cookies, summer fresh tomatoes, fish, collard greens, mm, steak, eggs, squash, sushi, hamburgers, french fries, curry, mm, turnip greens. Man, there's pretty much not a food that I've met that I do not like. The making of it can be an art. The food itself, beautiful and delicious, lovely, good. But if I ate all that I just named all at once, that would not be very good, would it? It would be, shall we say, gluttonous. Food is good. Too much food is gluttonous. Rest is good. We're given a day of week carved out just for rest, and man, I am thankful for that. We need plenty of rest each night. In fact, this little tracker here on my arm, I've recently discovered will track my rest at night. It's pretty cool. It'll show you um, your REM sleep, your deep sleep, your light sleep, because rest is good. And so we've set up ways to track and make sure we're getting enough of it. However, if we sleep all day as well as all night and never do any work in between, we're committing the sin of, you can probably guess, sloth, right? Rest is good, too much of it becomes sloth. Confidence is good, too much of it becomes pride, yes. So sin is like that sneaky mimic weed. It often looks a lot like what is good, so it can be kind of hard to spot. Okay, so back to our story. There's an enemy at hand, right? And the enemy has royally complicated things for the farmer and his family. I would be so mad. I mean, the weeds are hard enough without somebody going and planting extra in there. 
you don't want extra weeds in your garden, so what are they to do? Pull up the weeds? Nope. Farmer says, not going to work. You will uproot the wheat too. Not only are the roots all tangled together if they're planted together, but you'll probably get it wrong. It could be too early. You might not be able to tell the difference between the two. So leave that matter to me until later. So the weeds are not plucked up and everything gets water. You can't help it. It's all there together, right? To water the wheat, you got to water the weeds too. Preacher Alice McKenzie talks about how this parable is only found in Matthew's gospel. A lot of them you see in the different gospels. This one's just in Matthew, which could mean that Matthew was trying to speak into an issue that two groups of people in the congregation were disagreeing about. Uh, this would make sense since Matthew's gospel as a whole is speaking to a community in crisis with evidence of there's disputes popping up all throughout the gospel. So she goes on to say, I suspect that Matthew was writing to a mixed Jewish and Gentile congregation. Neither group really wanted to accept the other. Each viewed the other as weeds, themselves as wheat. Can that feel familiar to anybody? Perhaps the Jewish Christians felt since they were the sons and daughters of Abraham, surely they were the wheat and the Gentile Christians were getting in the way of their growth. Perhaps the Gentile Christians felt that they were the wheat with their freedom from the old rules and the Jewish Christians were an obstacle to their growth. If we can't be quite sure who is a weed and who is wheat, we're better off not touching anything, she says. So, the weeds are not plucked up and everything gets some water. Besides, watering weeds along with the wheat sounds an awful lot like what Jesus said to do earlier in Matthew. You remember when he told us to love our enemies? Paul also speaks to this, use similar, uses similar language and goes on to say, do not repay evil with evil. So just because the enemy went and planted some weeds in your weed, don't go do that to him. But give food and drink to our enemies and overcome evil with good, Paul says. How are we to love our enemies? By loving everyone. Everyone gets some water. Pastor and theologian Walter Wink speaks to this saying, if we identify enemies, it runs the risk of freezing them in their role. In other words, if we say, this is the kind of person you are, and people only see themselves as that, then they may not think that they could ever change. It could block their conversion, their ability to change. The command to love our enemies reminds us that our first task towards oppressors is pastoral, is to help them recover their humanity and see who they truly are. So he goes on to give an example, a story, and it comes from Lincoln, Nebraska. You may have heard this story before. It happened one Sunday morning June of 1991, when Cantor Michael Weiser and his wife Julie were unpacking boxes in their new home. Doesn't it feel good when you finally get to unpack some boxes when you move? It's a stressful time. So they were unpacking boxes when their phone rang. You'll be sorry you ever moved into 5810 Randolph Street, the voice said, and hung up the phone. Two days later, 
The Weisers received a manila packet in the mail. It said, the KKK is watching you. Inside the envelope were terrible pictures and harassing notes. So the Weisers were understandably concerned and called the police who said, it looked like it was the work of Larry Trapp, the state leader or grand dragon of the KKK. He was a Nazi sympathizer and had led Klansmen responsible for terrorizing black, Asian, and Jewish families in Nebraska and nearby Iowa. He's dangerous, the police warned. We know he makes explosives. Although confined to a wheelchair because of late stage diabetes, Trapp at age 44 was a suspect in the fire bombings of several African American homes the burning of a refugee assistance center, and later admitted to those crimes. And Trapp was plan planning to blow up the synagogue where Weiser was the spiritual leader. So you could understand their concern. Trapp lived alone in a drab efficiency apartment with a secret bunker he'd built for what he called the coming race wars. And so when Trapp launched a white supremacist TV series on local public access cable channel, Michael Weiser was incensed. He called Trapp's KKK hotline and left a message on the answering machine. Larry, he said, do you know that the very first laws that Hitler's Nazis passed were against people like yourself who had no legs or who had physical deformities or physical handicaps? Do you realize you would have been among the first to die under Hitler? Why do you love the Nazis so much? Then he hung up. Weiser continued the calls to the machine. Then one day, Trap picked up. What do you want, he shouted. I just want to talk to you, said Weiser. Stop harassing me, said Trap, who demanded to know why he was calling. Weiser, remembering a suggestion of his wife, said, well, I was thinking you might need a hand with something, and I wondered if I could help, Weiser ventured. I know you're in a wheelchair, and I thought maybe I could take you to the grocery store or something. Trap was too sun stunned to speak. Then he cleared his throat. <clears throat> That's okay, he said. That's nice of you, but I've got that covered. Thanks anyway. But don't call this number anymore. I'll be in touch, Weiser replied. During the later call, Trap admitted that he was rethinking a few things. But then, he went back on the radio spewing the same old hatreds. Furious, Weiser picked up the phone. It's clear you're not rethinking anything at all. After calling Trapp a liar and a hypocrite, Weiser demanded an explanation. In a surprisingly tremulous voice, Trapp said, I'm, I'm sorry I did that. I've been talking like that all my life. I, I can't help it. I'll apologize. That evening, the cantor led his congregation in prayers for the Grand Dragon. The next evening, the phone rang at the Weiser's home. I want to get out, Trapp said, but I don't know how. The Weiser's offered to go over to Trapp's that night to break bread together. Trapp hesitated, then agreed, telling them he lived in apartment number three. When the Weisers entered Trapp's apartment, he burst into tears and tugged off his two swastika rings. Soon, all three were crying, then laughing, then hugging.
Trapp resigned from all his racist organizations and wrote apologies to the many people he had threatened or abused. When a few months later, Trapp learned that he had less than a year to live, the Weissers invited, them in, invited him to move in to their two-bedroom, three-children home. When his condition deteriorated, Julie quit her job as a nurse to care for him, sometimes all night. Six months later, he converted to Judaism. Three months after that, he died. Most people who are violent have themselves been the victims of violence. It should come as no surprise then to learn that Larry Trapp had been brutalized by his father and was an alcoholic by the fourth grade. Weiser did not identify Trapp as an enemy to be plucked up, but as a human being. He didn't let Trapp walk all over him. Don't get me wrong. He did not condone the terrible things that he said. No, we, we heard that. He fought against all of those. But still, he treated him as a human being. The simple act of seeing Trapp for who he was, a child of God, and more than who he had been, allowed Trapp to change. When I first read this parable of the weeds and the wheat, I wished that the weeds could change. I wished that they could transform into wheat, but I kind of discounted that as a possibility of the parable because we all know that that's not the way it works. Weeds don't just change into wheat, right? My husband Charles and other farmers, I'm sure, would really love it if that's the way it happened. If a field of weeds could just turn into fruit-bearing produce uh, and crops. But that's not typically how it happens. Weeds don't turn into wheat. That would be a miracle. And while, yes, Jesus is in the business of miracles, this story isn't a miracle. It's a parable, isn't it? And then I wondered... Could it be both? For whether we're talking about weeds turning into wheat or humans changing who they are, isn't every conversion a miracle? If you sit on a new pew and you come to worship on Sunday morning when we get to do that again, that'd be pretty miraculous, right? Change your evening routine. See an enemy as a child of God. Some might be more miraculous than others, but isn't every conversion, every change of mind and action really a miracle? I think one of the most profound miracles of conversion is when we change how we think of others. But typically, something has to shift within us before that happens. Let me show you what I mean by that. The man went to his doctor and said, I think my wife's going deaf, he told the physician. Try to test her hearing at home and let me know how severe her problem is before you bring her in for treatment, the doctor said. So that evening, he decided to test things out. So when his wife was preparing dinner, the man stood 15 feet behind her and said, what's for dinner, honey? No response. So he moved 10 feet behind her and asked again. No response. Then he stood five feet behind her and tried again, but still got no answer. So finally, he stood directly behind her and asked, Honey, 
What's for supper? She turned around. For the fourth time, I said chicken. <laughs> I think one thing that often causes a conversion of how we see others is when we truly see ourselves. The guy in the story saw himself and his wife in a new way, right, by the end. Because when we're, we become more willing to acknowledge our faults and sinfulness, then we become more tolerant of the shadow in others. Jesus speaks to this earlier in Matthew. Why do we notice the speck in someone else's eye when we got a plank in our own, he asks. We are all a mixture of good and evil, and if God's not compassionate to us, then we're going to be lost. Wink writes about this saying, as we begin to love the enemy within, we develop the compassion we need to love the enemy without ourselves, the enemy outside of us. If, however, we believe that God who loves us hates those whom we hate, then we insert doubt into ourselves as well. Because unconsciously we know that a God hostile towards others is potentially hostile to us as well. And we know better than anyone because we know ourselves that there's plenty of cause for such hostility. So if God did not send sun and rain on everyone equally, God not only would not love everyone, God would love no one. So the weeds are not plucked up and everyone gets some water. We are called to give to everyone who needs it, friend and enemy alike, food and water. And I wanted to share with you a story about that. It's a story about St. Francis, and it's funny, these blurred lines. The scripture we read was a parable that feels kind of like a miracle. This is a miracle story because the saints, you know, in order to be given their sainthood, had to show the miracles that they performed. This is a miracle story but it feels a bit like a parable. The this is the story of St. Francis and the Wolf of Gubbio. The day Francis arrived to visit friends in the village of Gubbio, the city gates were bolted shut, the citizens armed with knives and fierce looks. A wolf had been terrorizing the village. He'd actually devoured several citizens of Gubbio. When a posse would venture up into the hills, the wolf would hide or manage to eat one of his pursuers. Francis said, I must pay a visit to my brother, the wolf. The citizens offered him weapons, but he climbed the hills unarmed. The citizens atop the city wall witnessing what they were sure would be the end of him. Sure enough, the wolf appeared, snarling, drooling, baring his fangs. Just as he approached Francis, the, sign the saint made the sign of the cross. The wolf sat down. Francis spoke. Brother wolf, you do much harm in this area. You are worthy of the gallows as a thief and the worst of murderers. But I, brother wolf, want to make peace between you and these people. He urged the wolf to repent, and the wolf bowed his head in sorrow. Francis continued, noticing the barren ground and lack of food on the hillside. 
I know very well that you did all this harm because of hunger. The wolf looked up. Francis promised a deal. If the wolf would confess his sin and promise not to terrorize the people any longer, the people would feed the wolf every day. Francis reached down and the wolf offered his paw in return. At first, the citizens of Gubbio were suspicious and on their guard. But after some time, they began to trust the wolf. Brother Wolf came in and out of their homes at leisure. He was like a pet to them. Even the dogs didn't bark at him. Two years later, when he died, the citizens of Gubbio wept. And in 1873, workers repairing a stone flooring uncovered a wolf's skull elaborately buried beneath a chapel dedicated to St. Francis. The weeds are not plucked up and everything gets water. Through the simple act of treating the wolf as a creature of God, a brother with worth, and offering him food and water, we see a conversion. But what is the surprise in this story? What is the miracle? That the wolf grew tame or that the people did? If I'm not sure who the weeds are and who the wheat are, and I'm not, then I am sure glad that right now no one gets plucked up and everyone gets some water. So there is hope, hard work, and a bit of miracle left to be done in the meantime in the growing. Amen.